Our Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ who came to live, to die, to rise again, and who is again returning one day. And we trust that that day might be very soon. As we look around in the world today, we see a condition very similar to that which we're reading about in Genesis. And even as the scripture prophesies, that will be similar to the end times. So Father, we pray that our faith will grow strong, our commitment to you will be deeper day by day. I ask, Lord, that as we study these passages from Genesis, that we will be encouraged and we will, our, our faith will be deepened in that we see God's plan and the word which you have sent to us of those early years. And Father, we're thankful that you've been faithful to your people over these many generations. And so we commit ourselves to you this morning for your plan and purpose in each of our lives. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read, if you will, from Genesis chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Genesis 6, 9. These are the records of the generations of Noah. Noah walked as a righteous man, blameless in his time. Noah walked with God. And Noah became the father of three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. And the Lord looked on the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That was the passage we ended up on last time. It's interesting and important, I think, for us to note. It begins with, these are the records of Noah. We're terminating, so to speak, the records of, of Adam, which the previous chapter began with. And we're looking at the generations that would follow from sort of the new Adam, as Noah would be. You and I have our genetic roots in Noah just as we have our genetic roots in Adam and Eve. One of the differences, of course, being that in Adam and Eve, we had perfection originally. In Noah, of course, the many centuries of change had already begun. But nevertheless, uh, the gene pool that was represented in Noah and his wife was, a far, uh, was in far better condition, of course, than the gene pool is today. Now, in the previous section that we read last week, in verse 8, it tells us that Noah found favor or grace in the eyes of the Lord. And as a result, in verse 9, we saw that his status or standing before God was righteous. That, that's our standing before God. Our righteousness is imputed to us by God. And, and that's a standing that we have. And that was the standing that Noah had. And his condition therefore was blameless. And we noted that the word meant wholeness or completeness. We are born into the world incomplete. Yes, we have a body and we have a soul, but we do not have a living spirit that is one that has been born again until we meet Jesus Christ. 
And at that point, we become whole. We become a complete person. And that's the meaning of the word blameless there. And so it was with Noah, because he found favor and had attained the status of righteousness, he was blameless, he was whole. He was as we are. And then from that would stem his performance, which was faithful. It says he walked with God. So from his righteous status came his blameless condition and henceforth his faithful walk. And if we look at that carefully in our own situation, that's true of us as it was of him. We find favor in the sight of God and we become righteous by his imputation of that standing. And that righteousness generates a condition of wholeness, and from that comes our walk of faithfulness. Now, you and I will all, of course, quickly respond that our walk of faithfulness kind of zigzags a little. And, and we're not perfect in that ultimate sense, and we all acknowledge that, hopefully. But one day, that blameless condition that is the result of the imputed righteousness will be a total reality for us. And that day when we stand before Jesus Christ with the new body that we have been given, will have been given by then. We will be perfect in every sense of the word. We will not be as God in, in, in possessing his ultimate attributes, but we will be far more like him than we are at this particular moment in time. We also noted how serious the conditions were at the time that God spoke these words to Noah. The scripture says, and the earth was corrupt, meaning the earth had gone to ruin. It was on its way to the pit, to hell. And it, that the earth was filled with violence. And that the word that says, that is translated violence there, means a malicious, evil intent of violence, not just the accidental so-called act of God, you know, the lightning bolt or the fire or the earthquake or the storm, not that kind of violence, but the violence that has an evil intent behind it, the violence that comes through the hands of evil men and women. We read this morning that God looked on the earth, and he saw this violence and corruption. Again, we must recognize that that's an anthropomorphism. It's sort of like, you know, and suddenly God looked down and says, oh my goodness, look what they're doing. Not at all, of course. God is omniscient, and God knew what would happen before it happened, and God knew how the conditions were developing as they went along. He was never taken by surprise, even though some might read it that way as they look at this passage of Scripture. So God witnessed the steady degeneration of the human race, how quickly it declined from that status of perfection to a, to a status of total, almost total corruption and violence. So total was it that there was only one man on planet Earth who was right in the sight of God, and that was this man Noah. Kind of frightening when you think about it. We've read before in a previous lesson the passage in, in Hebrews, so we won't turn to it, and I'll just note the well-known phrase in Hebrews 4.13, all things are laid open and bare to the eyes 
of him with whom we have to do. God sees you and your heart and me and my heart right here this morning. And he knows why we're here. Whether we're here purely out of a sense of duty or if we're here because we really want to meet him. We want to fellowship with believers. We want to know him in a way beyond that which we have known him to this point in time. It is our desire to serve him. He knows these things. And, and whether our desires are perfect or right at this moment or not, his love is still there. It is not increased or diminished by any act that we perform or even any attitude that we have. And as we look at this man Noah, we see this. I, I think if Noah were here, he would have admitted that he was far from perfect, that he was a man who had bad thoughts from time to time, who, who did things that weren't right. Who, who probably blew up at his wife from time to time, you know, whatever might be the problem. And yet God looked at him and declared him righteous, not because he himself had done so many good deeds. It's sort of like today. You and I are familiar with the fact that this whole New Age movement is sweeping through America and, and other parts of the world. And one of the main teachings of the, quote, New Age is the very old teaching of karma. And that, uh, you know, we have to sort of balance things off here. For every bad deed, we've got to have a good deed. And hopefully our good deeds will exceed our bad deeds so that when we die, we'll get to be bumped up in the reincarnation cycle. Instead of coming back next time as a grasshopper, we can come back next time as a rich man. You know, <laughs> sort of like the guy in Fiddler on the Roof, you know. Would it destroy any great eternal plan if I were a rich man, you know? <clears throat> And, 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 you know, if you can, if you can get your karma straightened out, uh, then, you know, that, that's a possibility next time around. But, of course, that is so foreign to the teaching of Scripture. There is not a thing we can do in this life that can make us one step closer to God by our own act. So Noah's righteousness was simply based on the faith that God had placed in his heart and which he returned to God and that righteousness was imputed that righteous standing was imputed to him. So when we read this passage, it says, God looked down. I think the intent of that passage is to indicate that that is the moment that God launched the program of judgment. That's the moment in time when judgment was set to come. Now, that's not to say that, that God didn't already have this great plan in motion because God knows all and he already has this overarching plan. But from our point of view, there has to be a beginning moment. And that seems to have been the moment. Centuries of grace had passed unheeded. Remember when you read the story about the children of Israel being in Egypt for, for 400 years? And, and the passage tells us that they were there partly because the iniquity of the Amorite was not yet full. God was going to give to the Amorites, the people who lived in Palestine, another 400 years of his grace for them to turn from their wickedness and to serve the living God. And they did not. And so judgment fell upon them through the hands of the children of Israel. Centuries and centuries of time passed, and the wickedness of man became worse and worse, and the grace of God was unheeded, so God says... I will not, my spirit will not forever strive with men. And the moment came 
when the plan was put into action and it was irreversible. The conditions that existed at that time on the planet Earth were conditions very similar, we're told in Scripture, to those that will prevail at the end, just before Jesus Christ returns. Let's look, if you will, at Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17, verse, beginning at verse 22. And he said to the disciples, The days shall come when you will long to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, look here. Do not go away and do not run after them. For just as the lightning, when it flashes out of one part of the sky, shines to the other part of the sky, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And just as it happened in the days of Noah, so it shall be also in the days of the Son of Man. Just as it happened in the days of Noah, so shall it be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and they were drinking. They were marrying. They were being given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. It was the same as happened in the days of Lot. They were eating, they were drinking, they were buying, they were selling, they were planning, they were building. But on the day that Lot went out from Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. It will be just the same on the day that the Son of Man is revealed. Now the point isn't that there is something evil about planting or building or eating or drinking or marriage, marrying and giving in marriage. That's not the point at all. The point is, of course, is that things were going just as they always did. The regular routine was going on. Now, in this passage in Luke, we, we have the sense that violence and corruption will fill the earth in the end of time as it did at the moment before this great judgment fell in the form of a flood. The difference will be in that rather than there just being one righteous person, there probably be, will be millions of righteous persons on the earth just before that judgment falls. And of course, the belief of the Christian Missionary Alliance and, and most evangelical fundamentalist schools of thought is that uh, Christ will rapture out those righteous people just before that ultimate uh, judgment falls and, quote, fire and brimstone uh, is poured out as we see it described in the book of Revelation upon the earth in judgment. You know, as... Uh, I quoted uh, Tennessee Ernie Ford. He's not exactly our leading theologian, but, you know, in the song about the, the flood, he, he says at the end, it won't be water, it'll be fire next time. And uh, that seems, of course, to be the clear teaching of Scripture relative to this. We discover also, as I was saying, that life will be going on in just a normal, even keel, and there won't be anything particularly unusual happening, and people will just say, look, it's been like this all along, it's not going to change, and, and they won't be aware of the fact that the age of grace is coming to an end, and that judgment will strike just as it did in the days of Noah. I'd like to turn a little bit further. We'll be looking at 2 Peter chapter 3 uh, in a few moments, a couple of verses later, but I'd like to, it's not on your outline, but 
If you turn to 2 Peter chapter 3, look at verses 3 and 4. 2 Peter 3, 3 and 4. Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Now, way back in one of our very first lessons, we read that passage and saw that, for one thing, it argues for this, the so-called theory of uniformitarianism in, in, the, in the broad sense. Now, here in this particular sense, we can see that it's just people saying, hey, well, let me say, this is what my father himself said to me many, many years ago before he really became a Christian. He said, when I was young, they were always preaching that the end of the earth was about to come, and it has never come. They kept saying, you know, time of World War I, oh, Jesus is coming, time of the Depression, Jesus is coming, and Jesus hasn't come. You know, that's the attitude that's being expressed here. We've gone through all these times. Back when the uh, calendar turned from the uh, year 999, December 31st, to January 1st, the year 1000, there was a great wave all across Europe of people believing that Jesus Christ had to come because the new millennium was beginning. And that must be the millennium, the new age, uh, the golden age uh, of Scripture. And, and then in the 14th century, when the so-called four horsemen of the apocalypse were very, very real in Europe, I mean, famine and plague and the Hundred Years' War and all of these things were causing great devastation, and people were literally a third of Europe was wiped out by the bubonic plague in six years. I mean, people were absolutely convinced Jesus has got to come because this is the sixth chapter of Revelation, if it ever existed in time. And yet Jesus didn't come. And so uh, many, even today, will say, well, you know, people are prophesying it, but that this is the end of time, but, but I really think that it'll be, we'll have another thousand years on this planet at least before Jesus comes. I hope not. But, but this, you know, this is the thinking that comes out of this passage. Things have gone on just as they've always gone on. Why should there be any change? You can imagine that's the way they thought in the days of Noah. This idiot was building this big box out there. What for? They didn't believe there was going to be a flood to destroy the planet. Let's go back to the sixth chapter of Genesis and read from verse 13. Genesis 6, beginning at verse 13. Then God said to Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me. For the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I am about to destroy them with the earth. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. You shall make the ark with rooms and shall cover it inside and out with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits. Its breadth, 50 cubits. Its height, 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark and finish it to a cubit from the top and set the door of the ark in the side of it. And you shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I, even I, am bringing the flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh which is in, the which, in which is the breath of life from under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall perish, but I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing 
of all flesh, you shall bring two of every kind into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds after their kind and of the animals after their kind, of creeping every creeping thing of the ground after its kind, two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And as for you, take for yourself some of all food which is edible, and gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for food for you and for them. Thus Noah did, according to all that God commanded him, so he did. What an epitaph, huh? And according to all that God commanded him, so he did. Wouldn't it be wonderful to have that written on our tombstone? I mean, not that we're interested in having a tombstone too soon, but, you know, that would be a wonderful epitaph to have. Now, this is really one of the most incredible passages of all Scripture. God is here explaining to Noah what he is about to do and why he is going to do it. And at the same time, he's telling Noah what his role is to be. Now, we're not told what Noah's reaction was. Was Noah pleased? Was he shocked? Was he frightened by God's announcement? He certainly must have been something amongst those emotions. I think he was at least overwhelmed with the magnitude of what God was saying. Now, for you and for me, it's not quite as incredible, even though it's pretty incredible, because at least there's a precedent. But there was no precedent for him. Nothing had ever happened like this before. And it probably took days, maybe even weeks, for it really to sink in. God is really going to destroy the surface of this planet, and he's going to wipe out the human race. Now, the human race had been on the planet for at least a millennium and a half. Josephus tells us it was two millennia and a half, whatever he knows about it. And there is no scriptural evidence of any calamity of any sort in, in terms of the, of the natural world recorded. It doesn't say, you know, in the years in which all these different generations were growing up and there were major earthquakes and there were minor floods. And it doesn't say anything about that makes no comments relative to that. So it could be that natural disasters were t almost totally unknown before that time. So when God came to Noah and said, I'm going to wipe out the human race, with the exception of you and your family, and I'm going to do it with a great flood, I think Noah had, had to do a double take. He probably had to first of all say, I better make sure that I'm hearing this from God and that I've got the message straight because it's a very profound message and rather far-reaching. And as you look at the verse 13, you discover these words are extremely ominous. The end of all flesh has come before me, and I'm about to destroy them with the earth. That verse alone, when you think about it very much, could have a strong tendency to straighten out our priorities. You know? To realize that many of the castles we want to build in our minds and, and somehow in our lives are pretty irrelevant. 
And, and the name that we want emblazoned on that sign to be carried down through the, through the generations of what great corporation we founded or how some way we made a great mark in the human race becomes really unimportant when you look at that. The end has come and I'm going to wipe them all out. <laughs> whatever you've accomplished, whatever any of them had accomplished, what did it do? What would it be for? Total destruction. Except for these few verses in Genesis that we already read in previous chapters. And of course the legends that were carried down through Noah's family. Certainly many of the legends of the world having to do with the flood. And we'll talk about this a little bit later. You've, you've all heard of the Gilgamesh epic. And there are numerous epics that have developed in various societies having to do with the great flood. And of course... These epics had to originate through the word of mouth, the oral transmission from Noah, Noah's children to his grandchildren to the great-grandchildren on down the line. As, as this tradition was carried down, it became the many different legends that exist today having to do with the flood. Other than those verses in Genesis and those legends, even the memory of the people who lived before the flood has been blotted out. Totally gone. And we don't even know the names of but a few. And they're in this record. Just think, somebody could have lived 800 years and, and built several cities and even established a country and we don't even know his name today. That's how important it was. Now, for, for human beings, that's, that's kind of tragic because why did Cheops, for example, build the Great Pyramid? Did he build the Great Pyramid because he wanted to, to employ unemployed Egyptians? You know, kind of a WPA or a CCC? <laughs> no. He was building this great monument to his memory. He was going to be buried inside. And he wanted all generations to remember him because in Egyptian religion, part of e eternal existence is, is being remembered in the minds of the living. That's pretty sad when you think about it, especially when you think of these people before the flood because we don't even remember them. <laughs> They're totally gone, blotted out completely. This whole portion of Genesis makes it abundantly clear that knowing and obeying God is the only thing that matters on the surface of this planet. Nothing else matters. Knowing God and obeying Him is all that really matters. And our life has got to be a fountain where that is the fountainhead and everything in our life flows from that truth. Otherwise, we're building with sticks and stones that will just totally be obliterated and nothing will be left of any value at all. And yet, you and I are always tempted, aren't we, or frequently tempted, to pour our efforts into something that doesn't really matter. To spend hours and hours and hours of our time doing something. Now, it's good to have recreation. It's good to have an avocation. But sometimes we go overboard with this, and, and, and it becomes a god in our life. And it's going to be gone. It doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It's sad to spend so much time in something that is so unimportant. 
You know the passage in Mark 6, Mark 8. What shall it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet loses his own soul? <laughs> you know, Satan took Jesus out and said, look, I'll give you all of these kingdoms because I've been given the authority to do that if you'll but bow down and worship me. And Jesus said, hey, you know, it is written that thou shalt worship the Lord thy God and he alone, him alone shall you worship. Um, but this, this comes glaringly out of this passage as I see it. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Terrifying words, are they not? When they come from the mouth of Almighty God. Now, if they just came from the uh, mouth of some ruler, that'd be scary enough if you were a, a subject to his kingdom. But from God, the God of the universe who created it all, and he says, the end's come. I've drawn the line. I've dotted the sentence. I put the period there. It's, it's over. These are words of final judgment, final for that civilization, for that society. It came to an end. I'm going to read a passage from Ezekiel because although the words do not apply directly to this, they could have applied to this. They apply to a later judgment that God brings upon his people. And, and you, of course, all know that Ezekiel was a prophet of the um, exilic period, a prophet during the exile. And uh, Israel was carried off into Babylon. And the words, the words are very reminiscent of the situation that existed in the days of Noah. Je uh, Ezekiel chapter 7 beginning at verse 1. The, the chapter goes on with a lot of words like this, but I just want to read the first nine verses and see the flavor here. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord to the land of Israel, an end. The end is coming on the four corners of the land. Now the end is upon you, and I shall send my anger against you, and I shall judge you according to your ways, and I shall bring all your abominations upon you. For my eye will have no pity on you, nor shall I spare you. But I shall bring your ways upon you, and your abominations will be among you. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, a disaster, unique disaster, behold, it is coming. An end is coming. The end has come. It has awakened against you. Behold, it has come. Your doom has come on you, has come to you, O inhabitant of the land. The time has come. The day is near. Tumult rather than joyful shouting on the mountains. Now I will shortly pour out my wrath on you and spend my anger against you, judge you according to your ways, and bring on you all your abominations. And my eye will show no pity, nor will I spare. I will repay you according to your ways while your abominations are in your midst. Then you will know that I, the Lord, do the smiting. Now, those are not real encouraging words when you read that. Uh, you know, it's not a, a passage of direct exhortation. It's a passage of judgment. It can be exhortation to us, of course, 
to focus our attention on, on what really matters in life. But obviously those are the same words that in effect could have been preached by a prophet and, and possibly Noah did preach words similar to that to the people of his day. And they didn't pay any attention. They were, as it seems, deaf and dumb, as were Israel, as was Israel later on in history. And sometimes as is the church, unfortunately, from time to time. God not only gives clear and adequate warning of judgment before it comes, he also gives the reason why it is coming. God doesn't smite us out of the blue. God gives us plenty of warning. He chastises, he directs, and then when we are really stiff-necked and hard of hearing, he uses the two-by-four. In this case, of course, it wasn't just a two-by-four. The earth was filled with malicious violence. I mean, it was so vile that the earth was like a gigantic cesspool of immorality and lust and selfishness. It says the earth was filled. And you know it had to be filled if there was only one righteous person on the planet. Noah. Talk about being alone. Now, of course, we assume hopefully his wife was uh, also a believer and his sons and, and their wives, even though Scripture doesn't say one way or another, they did believe enough to join him in the ark. So that, that is good. And if, if we use that as a parallel to the New Testament, we can say, well, yeah, obviously they were believers because they got onto the ark of safety. But that's still a pretty small group. And to consider the fact that everybody else your brothers, your sisters, your cousins, your nieces, your nephews, and everybody else on the planet rejected what you believed and was willing to accept destruction. Of course, not believing that it would happen. Let's look back again at Second uh, Peter and read the next two verses after the two we already read. Second Peter 3 verses 5 and 6. Referring back, of course, to the verses we just read, he goes on to say, for when they maintain this, you know, that all continues as it always has been and there aren't any changes, it escapes their notice that by the word of God the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water and by water through which the world at that time was destroyed being flooded with water. And, of course, it's a direct reference to the Noahic flood. They forget when they say, where is the sign of his coming? They forget that that's what they said in the days of Noah. We don't believe you, Noah. But it happened anyway. It, it reminds me, you know, of the people who tell you, but that's your interpretation. I don't believe it. Well, believe it or not, if just because you don't believe it doesn't mean it won't happen. Just because we don't believe that we have to trust in Christ for eternal salvation doesn't mean that that's not true. A lot of people reject the truth. I've heard it said that there are people living in the interior of the Amazon basin who don't believe that we've ever been to the moon because for them that's totally impossible. It was all made up in Hollywood. Well, maybe. <laughs> I don't think so. But... Uh, 
And of course, there is a flat world society today. I think it's mostly a joke, but there probably are some people who, who want to believe that that is true. After hearing the dramatic pronouncement of verse 13, that the end of all flesh has come, I'm sure Noah was very grateful when God went on to say, now for you, I want you to make yourself an ark of gopher wood. <laughs> There's no evidence to indicate that Noah was a carpenter or that Noah was a boat builder. We, we don't know that he owned a, you know, a great uh, boat building company on the shores of, of you know, Lake whatever or Sea whatever. Uh, we're not told about that at all. But with God's instructions coming to him very clearly as to how it was to be made, he certainly could put down basic plans and hire the necessary carpenters and the necessary boat builders to come and build this ark for him, with him. Now often we see the picture and it looks like Noah and his three sons do the whole job. We don't have to believe that that's so. There's nothing in Scripture to indicate that those four are the only ones who worked on building the ark. There could have been hundreds who were hired to help build the ark. That doesn't do any violence to Scripture at all. I think that, of course, you look through the pages of children's books and you look at some of the film strips, all kinds of fanciful, fanciful pictures have been made as to what the ark must have looked like. Often it's, it's, you know, big high pointed boughs on it, you know, and animal heads sticking out of all the windows and cracks and uh, sort of uh, ludicrous idea. Based on figment of someone's imagination. But if we look carefully at the passage here in Genesis, beginning with the sixth chapter and going through the eighth chapter, I think we could get a picture of what the ark more likely really looked like. Now, the little handout you have before you is, again, an artist's conception. It's a little bit more realistic than most. Uh, it seems from the description here that the ark was sort of like a big barge. It wasn't built to particularly go anywhere. It just had to float, that's all. Now, it certainly wasn't, as uh, the Gilgamesh epic has it, a cube. Now, obviously, a cube would be rather unstable. You never know what corner is going to be in the water next, you know, and the thing be rolling around like this, be a little tough on the animals inside. Uh, but, but this was a, a great structure which would have tremendous stability. Let, let's look at what... Uh, we're told here in the sixth chapter of Genesis about this. First of all, we discover that Noah was instructed to build an ark. Now, what in the world is an ark? Well, the Hebrew word here is teba, which generally is interpreted to mean a box or a chest. Now, the word ark comes from the Latin vulgate the Latin word arca, A-R-C-A, from which we get the word ark in English. Some commentators feel that the word in its original had a close affiliation to the Egyptian word for palace. Of course, our feeling would be not so much that this thing looked like a palace, but maybe the size of a palace in terms of its dimensions. 
The only other reference to Noah's Ark other than those which are specifically references to this structure uh, is the word used in the first part of the book of Exodus where it talks about the baby Moses being put into an ark and floating in the Nile River. In that case, of course, we think of it as just being a little box or some kind of a basket uh, that was floating uh, on the river. And, of course, it had the same purpose, and that was to preserve the life of this individual inside this small structure. So, first of all, we can say Noah has been instructed to build a great box. At least that's what it would appear to those who looked at it. Secondly, we discover that he was, he was ordered to, to build it of gopher wood. <laughs> now, the Hebrew word gopher is only used here in Scripture and nowhere else. And, of course, all the commentators have studied this and they've basically come up with no clear answer as to what this word refers to. The exact meaning is really a mystery. Some say that it refers to some kind of hardwood. Well, that's a speculation. There's no evidence one way or the other. There have been those who have come down off of Mount Ararat carrying this hunk of heavy wood, claiming that it came from the ark and it's some kind of mysterious wood. But I've never seen an analysis made to discover uh, what this wood really was. Or, of course, did it come from the ark at all? We don't know. Some think that because it's very similar to the later word which talks about caulking it with pitch, that it is a reference to resinous wood, meaning therefore something like pine or more likely cypress. And, and that's because in the ancient world of the Phoenicians uh, that was, and the Egyptians, that was a common wood used to build ships out of, cypress. And so many feel that it probably was a reference to Cyprus. Now, what's interesting is the Septuagint version takes a totally different tact. The Septuagint version translates this word as tetragonus, which means four square, square. Make it out of square timbers, in other words. Well, I guess that makes sense. Maybe that's what it meant. We don't know. But obviously it was God's instruction and Noah knew what it meant. Thirdly, we're told that the ark was to contain rooms. Now the Hebrew word here literally means nests. The various decks of the ark were thus to be partitioned. It wasn't just a big open like this room here, just a big open deck. But it was all partitioned off into, quote, nests seemingly to indicate that each pair or maybe groups of similar pairs were to have their own place of security, their own place to go, their nest, if you will, so that they could be kept there and, and they could be safe from other animals that might be a threat to them. You know, even if God miraculously shut the mouths of the carnivores, you know, in a good wave rolling around, you wouldn't want to be a small animal next to a big animal if the big animal fell down, you know. It's kind of interesting when you think about that. I, when, I was, when I was studying it, the, the verse came into my mind, and maybe it has come into yours, in the 14th chapter of John. Jesus said, I have gone to prepare many rooms for you. God, Jesus has gone to prepare a place of security for us, similar to these 
nests or places of security on the ark of safety that was being built by Noah. Now, obviously, uh, Noah didn't just build, I mean, it seems obvious anyway, that Noah wouldn't just build a big box with three layers. That there had to be bulkheads that crossed periodically. In fact, um, Josephus says that the uh, ark was braced with cross beams so that when it rode the waves, it wouldn't collapse. And, and so you can just imagine these great bulkheads would be built through the ship, and then between the bulkheads would be built these smaller little areas. And probably there was something like a central aisle and little cul-de-sacs off the central aisle with little nests on each side. I mean, you can imagine all of this kind of thing, kind of a honeycomb situation. This would, of course, made it orderly, and, and you could know whether you fed the animals or not, you know, you follow some kind of an order as you go through there. And, and, and by doing this, of course, you also would distribute the weight properly. Make sure that the lower decks have the bigger animals and that you don't have all the big animals in the front or the rear. Uh, you kind of spread them out, and, and of course, as you go up, put the smaller animals towards the, towards the top. I mean, just, you can just imagine how the order would come as you think about this. Fourthly, we're told that it was to be caulked inside and out with pitch. The word for pitch is very, very similar to the word gopher here. And this is the only place that's used in Scripture, just as it's true for the word gopher. Each is only used one time in this passage in Scripture. Now, the Septuagint translates this word as bitumen, which refers to a tar, and, and, and it's not, it's kind of a generic word for tar. It could be wood tar, coal tar, petroleum tar, just some kind of tar. And of course, you know that that part of the world, uh, we don't know exactly where he built the ark, but that part of the world is a uh, part of the world which has a lot of uh, petroleum in it. Now, whether any of that petroleum existed before the flood or not is another question, uh, or was the product of the flood. But whatever the case is, uh, we know that that part of the world, at least today, has a great deal of the basic substance there. Fifthly, the ark was of great dimensions. We're not talking about a little thing you can fit in this room. No known wooden ship has ever been built to the scale of the ark. The greatest wooden ships ever built would probably not achieve much more than half the length of the ark. Now, in the age of steel, much larger ships have been built, but not in the age of wood. It's kind of interesting when you think about this, that the age of steel ships is only about a century and a half old. That for all of the existence of the human race, wooden ships have prevailed. It's sort of like thinking about the fact that you could talk through most of history about riding a horse and traveling someplace on a horse, and everybody immediately relates to you. Well, today, if you ride a horse, it's for fun, or it's in a race or something. It's not because you need to to get from place to place, right? There are a lot of, a lot of parallels like that that are kind of interesting when you think about it. Now, certainly ships plied the rivers and the seas of that day. I mean, ships weren't unknown, certainly. Remember, we have a brilliant human race here. 
starting out with, with mental capacity uh, that far exceeds anything anybody uh, has today, certainly. And, and uh, they would have built ships and uh, boats, and so the whole idea of a ship was not foreign to the people. But they would have been minuscule compared to this. I mean, this is a grandiose building. This is a huge structure that he's been ordered to build here. And I think a lot of people laughed at Noah for building not only something so colossal, but so far from anything that would float it. You know, even if he were building it, let's, let's just imagine that he was building it beside the Tigris River, and we have no idea to say that that's true. Might have been built anywhere near the Tigris River. But it certainly wouldn't have floated on the Tigris River, especially not loaded. Tigris is not a particularly deep river. It's full of sediment. Euphrates too. So they thought, oh, this guy is a total loony. Oh, we're glad to take his money and help him build it. <laughs> but, you know, what did the people think when Howard Hughes built his spruce goose? It was gigantic plywood wooden flying boat. I'm sure a lot of people thought he was nuts. But of course they were willing to take his money to help him build it. Probably was same, same was true for Noah. Now we're told in the scripture that it was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Now obviously how big that was depends on the definition of a cubit. Well, from those who have studied metrics from ancient times will tell you that a cubit theoretically means the distance from the point of the elbow to the tip of the middle finger. Well, not everybody has an equal length along there, do they? And of course, standards of measure, which are so important to us today, haven't always been that important. So it's assumed that uh, from most studies that have been made that a cubit varied from about 18 inches to about 24 inches, with 21 sort of being an average. So most commentators will take the smallest number to be as conservative as possible. And in so doing, you discover the dimensions which are on that little picture that you have there. The ship was 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet high. Now, 450 feet long, that means that it would not fit in a football field in length because a football field's 300 feet long plus the gold, uh, goals, which are, what, 30 feet deep or however deep they are? Um, it's 360 feet. You, you're going to have to add another 90 feet. You're going to punch through the two grandstands at the end, you know, just kind of crunch the whole thing down. You, you kind of fit the ark in there. It's a big boat. It's a big structure. Now, such a structure, because it apparently was more or less rectangular, would have had a cubic volume of 1.5 million cubic feet, give or take a few, depending on the thickness of the decks and, and a, few, a few other things. But 1.5 million cubic feet, it's a lot of space. I'd hate to pay for air conditioning for that much space. Those who have studied this, and I was reading one particular analysis where they were taking 
probably the size of the wood that would have been used, the approximate density of the wood that would have been used, and, and putting together the total number of planks that would have been necessary. They've they come up with a figure of the wood itself, just the wood alone, weighing in excess of 4,000 tons. 4,000 tons of wood. Well, what lumber company wouldn't like to get that order? <laughs> um, 4,000 tons. And then when this big thing was floated and loaded, it could have, maximum load, had a, had a displacement of 20,000 tons. Now that's bigger than ships ever were until the 19th century. Before the 19th century, there wasn't a ship that even came close to 20,000 tons of displacement. Later in the 19th century, they began to build some ships uh, that were of that size, but they weren't of wood, they were of steel. Now, you discover, of course, that the length ratio to the width is a 6 to 1 ratio. 50 divided into 300 is 6. So it's 6 times as long as it is wide. And those who have studied marine architecture will tell you that, that that's a very stable relationship, a very stable ratio. Um, some of our modern racehorses, uh, like the liners that race out across the ocean at 25 knots, have an 8 to 1 ratio, but that's because they need speed. But tankers and some of the things that carry a large cargo are much closer to a 6 to 1 ratio. And uh, a 6 to 1 ratio in a scow-like thing would be almost impossible to upset. It would be extremely stable on even tempestuous waters, as probably existed. Virtually impossible to capsize. Not to count the fact that God would have seen to it that it didn't capsize. <clears throat> Sixthly, the ark was to have three decks. Now, if we consider the bottom to have been a deck, and we don't know whether it would have been a deck or not, whether there was a kind of a bilge area allowed or not, but if you consider the bottom to have been a deck, this would have allowed 15-foot clearance or 14-foot clearance, depending on the thickness of the deck, uh, for each layer. Josephus tells us that the, that the whole thing was four stories high, whatever that meant to Josephus, whatever a story was in his thinking. If you allow for an opening for ramps, obviously animals had to be able to get to the upper layer, so there probably would have been ramps up. Uh, there would have been at least a minimum of 30,000 square feet per deck. Henry Morris, in his book, The Genesis Record, will tell you that if, if you, uh, con you consider that surface area and the cubic volume, that it would have been large enough to hold 125,000 grown sheep. And if you consider the sheep to be a very average animal, in other words, there are as many animals smaller than a sheep as there were larger than a sheep, probably more smaller than a sheep, uh, there would have been no problem whatsoever getting the necessary animals in the ark. Plenty of room. Plenty of room for the animals and plenty of room for the food necessary to keep them for the uh, necessary length of time. Even if you don't think of the fact that some postulate that the animals went into some kind of hibernation, which God induced. That, that's very possible he did, but let's not even assume that. Still, there'd have been plenty of room for the necessary food uh, 
to supply that many animals. Seventhly, we're told that the ark was to have a continuous window around the top, at least by implication. The word is toshar, which literally means midday light. The word for window really means midday light. And so the context seems to indicate that there had to be an opening somewhere around the upper part and many interpreted either that the opening was 18 inches or a cubit below the roof or it was 18 inches high immediately below the roof. Whatever was the case, there was this skylight all the way around which of course would have had the bulwarks running up to support the roof so they would have been partitioned off but there they were to provide light and what? Ventilation. You're going to need a lot of that. I don't know as I'd like to ride an ark. It's assumed that Noah and his family were on the upper deck. I don't know. Heat rises and so does everything that's with it. And uh, I don't know if that had been a good idea, but at least you've been closer to the fresh air and stick your head out every once in a while, you know, uh, to uh, take a whiff. You know, when you start getting down to the nitty-gritty of it, you think, oh, this wasn't so romantic. Uh, eighthly, there apparently was a single door set in the side. Literally, the word means an opening or entrance. And since God said, let's shut it, it must have had a door in it, of course. Now, this drawing shows the, open, the door. It looks like it goes clear to the bottom. That's very highly unlikely. Uh, it's more likely that the door was built up at least one floor so that as the ark floated in the water, you wouldn't get a lot of leakage in through the door. Now, it probably could have been caulked shut, but it would have been easier if the door was a little higher and wasn't below the water line, certainly. Now, to finish, and we come to the bottom of your uh, outline there, I don't think it's very hard, and it doesn't take a great wild imagination here to draw a strong parallel between the single door into the Ark of Safety and the single door or gateway into that eternal Ark of Safety, which is heaven. We all remember the words of Jesus, right? So often he used the picture of a shepherd. In the 10th chapter of John, Jesus spoke these words. Jesus, in verse 7, Therefore said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. And all who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. In other words, there is one way. You ever sing that song when you were in Sunday school? One door and only one, and yet its sides are two inside and outside, and which side are you? The ark had a single door. Heaven has a single door. And it's not through Buddha or just, you know, any old body you like. Scripture clearly says it's through Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 7, again a very familiar passage, verses 13 and 14. Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and many are those who enter by it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and few are those who find it. The single door in the ark gives us a wonderful picture of the single way by which we attain heaven.
and Jesus Christ being that door.